All right, so Chris asked me to uh, carry on in the Gospel of Luke, so I'm going to invite you to join me in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38 on through verse 42 for our teaching text tonight, page 1040, no, 1041 in your pew Bible. And uh, I'm going to ask you to stand again, sorry, in honor of reading God's word. Thank you. We read, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? You can sit down if you want to pray. If you can sit down. We'll pray while you sit. Jesus, thank you for these words. Thank you for the tenderness of these words. Thank you for the challenge of these words. Thank you for the reality of these words. I pray that you would help us enter in. I pray that you would help us to understand. I pray that you would help us to see you calling to us by name tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as Chris uh, mentioned last week in regards to the parable of the Good Samaritan, which comes right before this little vignette, uh, most people are aware of the Good Samaritan parable, whether you've grown up in church or not. I mean, in fact, all our, you know, a, lot of, a lot of our nation's leaders have used that parable and claimed that parable. George W. Bush has used it. Barack Obama has used it. Hillary Clinton used it in her book, Takes a Village. Uh, M.L.K. Jr. cites it. It's a very familiar parable, and um, everybody likes to use it for what they want to use it for. Now, Luke follows up that parable with this little story of Mary and Martha. Now, less people may be familiar with this story, but if you have grown up in church over the years, uh, this is one of those stories that uh, you either love or hate, depending on how you relate to the people in the story. Um, Maybe some of you have done these um, personality tests or these self-assessments where you try to get a a deeper understanding of who you are, you get a deeper understanding of your wiring and how you are built, how Jesus has made you. Uh, For me, one of those tests is the Enneagram test, right? So for me, I am Enneagram type 9, which is the peacemaker. I like for everybody to uh, just be at peace and get along with each other. Um, I lean towards the perfectionism of type 1. So I relate to Martha here. I, I love taking care of people. Uh, I love seeing a need that needs to be met and then going about it to see that that need is taken care of. 
Now, being a type 9 means that I am conflict-averse, so I tend to want to make everyone as happy as they can be for the moment. Uh, another one of these self uh, kind of leadership coach things that I've done over the years is this strategy for improved motivated abilities. Uh, so discerning what, what motivates me to do what I do and why do I do the things that I do. Well, one of the things that that uh, experience brought to the surface for my life is I am motivated, motivated by doing things right by making the grade, by achieving a standard, by doing what you're supposed to do. Now, I've got to admit, when I am in an unhealthy emotional place about all of that, like Martha here, I can get a little upset when people aren't doing what I want them to be doing. Or when people aren't doing what I think is the right thing for them to do, uh, or when they're not doing what I think they should be doing, then it's easy for me to get upset that they're not serving the way I think they should be serving or serving the way I am serving. I get like Martha, huffy, <laughs> that other people aren't helping me. Uh, my wife and my family know this uh, most painfully and most often about how huffy I can get that I do all the things at the house which is not really true, right? And so Jesus gets right to the heart about what my problem is. Who am I really serving? Myself or Jesus Christ? I think it's brilliant how Luke arranges his gospel text here. You have, uh, like, you, like you did last week, you have this expert lawyer stand up. He asks, what do I do to make the grade, right? What do I do to inherit eternal life? A nonsensical question in the first place, as Chris pointed out last week. Jesus says, well, you're the expert. How do you read it? And then we hear the great commandment, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Love God with everything you have and love other people just as much as you love yourself. So then the parable of the Good Samaritan is about what it looks like to love your neighbor or to be a neighbor to someone, what it means to serve your neighbor. That kind of love, that kind of service in the name of Christ breaks down all kinds of walls that we often like to put up as human beings, racial walls, economic walls, religious walls. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is a story about loving your neighbor. And then Luke puts this story right after that parable. I think Luke picks it up there to show us what it looks like to love God, right? You see how the, he's put the two events in place in his book, love God, love your neighbor, parable about how to love your neighbor, and a reminder about how we love God. He'll go into how we pray in the next chapter, so all of it's, all of it's connected. But for me, it's like Luke is saying, serving your neighbor and bustling about serving others is good, and we are called and challenged to self-sacrificial love that moves past these boundaries to help others. But again, who are we really serving? Who is all that for? What is the motivation behind it all? Loving God or getting God to love me? Or getting God to do what I think he should do? Or getting Jesus to tell this other person what I think they should do to help me? Martha here 
was serving Jesus himself, and yet it became more about her than about Jesus. What is our motivation? What is our motivation for serving the neighborhood as Letter Street's Covenant Church? Jesus is calling Martha to a deeper motivation for her busyness. I don't think he's criticizing her busyness per se. I think he's criticizing her motivation for her busyness. Martha, let's, t- let's take a step back a little bit. Let's take a look at Martha. You remember Martha? Jesus enters Martha's house after a day of traveling. Martha welcomes him with open arms. She has this incredible desire to show him great hospitality. The Savior of the world is worth the great hospitality. Luke says that it's her home, so she's the manager of the house. Uh, She's the owner of the house. She runs the show. This is a woman who is a leader. She knows how to organize things. She knows how to make things happen. Probably runs a little Etsy store online on the side, bring in a little extra money. We know Martha likes to take charge of things. Uh, We know Mary and Martha are some of Jesus' best friends, along with Lazarus, their brother. Uh, We read over in John chapter 11, when Lazarus uh, gets deathly ill and is about to die, Martha sends word to Jesus to come quickly and do something about it. Spoiler alert, Levi, uh, Lazarus eventually dies, and the funeral is at Martha's house. When Jesus shows up, a little bit late, Martha runs straight out to him and says to Jesus, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Martha has the faith to bring her if-onlys to Jesus, right? Martha has the faith to say yes to Jesus when he responds to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe. When Jesus tells the people to remove the stone from Lazarus' grave, Martha is the one with enough sense to say, Lord, it's been four days. As the KJV version puts it, right? Behold, he stinketh. So Martha is assertive. Martha is diligent. She's motivated to serve others and to tend to their needs. She is a leader. But there's one big problem. As she's in the kitchen, bustling about, trying to get things ready, while Mary is out at the teacher's feet seemingly doing nothing to help her. Here's one problem. Did you hear it? Luke says it in verse 40. He says this, Martha was distracted. She was distracted with all the preparations that had to be made. She was distracted with much service. The Greek word, therefore, distracted is perispao, and it means to be pulled away. Martha's heart is pulled away by these other things. The irony about these other things is that they are good things. They need to be done. They are done in service to Jesus himself, yet her heart was pulled away. Jesus walks into her house. Son of God, God in the flesh, love in the flesh. She invites Jesus into her home, and yet her heart is pulled away with everything she has to do for Jesus. And I, I wonder how often we get in such a state, either, uh, either at the church or at home. Uh, most of us want to do good things 
for Jesus. We want to do good things for God. We want to do good things for the Lord. We serve at church. We serve on the kids' team downstairs or with the kids' cohort. We serve on the sound team, the worship team. We sign up for kingdom service projects, mission trips, prayer team, cold weather shelter, all of that stuff. And yet so easily our hearts can be still pulled away. When it becomes about the service itself and not the reason for the service, we can easily get mad that someone didn't do their fair share of the project. Or we can feel like we are left all alone to take care of ourselves. Nobody cares like we care about this project or about this ministry, about this opportunity. We can get that way in our homes as well. We get very, very busy and we have a lot to do. We haven't got a lot of time to explain it all to you. And in our work as well, we just get so busy with all this stuff, not just church stuff, but with all this stuff, they so easily pull us away from why we're doing it in the first place. And we see a few signs of this state of heart. Four signs. We see four signs. Notice the four signs of this state of heart. Jesus says to Martha, 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 you are worried and upset about many things. So see if you notice these things in your heart as well. Uh, they can be clues that your heart uh, is pulling away from the one thing necessary in the moment. First clue that we see, first of all, worry. Martha, you are worried. You are worried about all these things that are important, yes, but not as important as you might think they are in the grand scheme of things. So when you find yourself worried about whatever it is that you're worried about, I want to encourage you, stop and think about it. Stop and think if your heart is being pulled away from Christ in that moment. What are you worrying about? Jesus himself encourages us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. He just puts it out there. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Don't worry about your body. What you will wear is not your life. More important than food, your body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father clothes them. Feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? I love this question. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about your clothes? Jesus continues. See the lilies of the field. How they grow, they do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Anything else you seek is going to pull you away from Jesus Christ. Seek first his kingdom. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's Jesus, the realist, giving us some real talk. Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, says, Do not be anxious about anything. And I'm thankful for that comma because he says, but in everything, by prayer and petition, <laughs> he doesn't say, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, be anxious. 
He says, do not be anxious about anything, comma, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. So worry. Let worry be an indicator. Let worry be a clue. Whenever you start to feel that anxiousness, let it, instead of pulling you away, let it pull you towards Jesus, back to Jesus. So we see Martha worried. You are worried, Martha. Secondly, we see that Martha is upset. She's got this inner turmoil going on. Not only is she consumed by worry, but Jesus says she's upset. She's bothered. She's got this this turmoil that's going on inside of her. In the midst of all the good that she's trying to do, she's not finding joy in her service. She's not doing the service out of joy, but out of something else. Either her need to be needed or her need to be accepted on how well she performs her hospitality duties. So when you get upset or when you have this sense of inner turmoil about whatever, let that be an indicator that you may need to go and sit at the feet of Jesus for a while like Mary did. I've always remembered what one of our profs at Regent would say, John Stackhouse. He says... I like the way he puts it. He says, you know what's in a cup when it gets upset. You know what's in a cup when it gets upset. You know what's in your heart when you get upset because what's in your heart when you get upset spills out, spills over. What's in your cup, what's inside gets spilled out when the turmoil comes. So Martha's worried, Martha's upset. A third sign that our hearts are pulled away from Jesus himself. Third sign is comparison. Did you notice that? Martha here is comparing herself to what Mary is doing, and that makes Martha mad. Martha is basing her actions on someone else's actions. Martha is basing her behavior on what someone else is doing, which is not an indicator of emotional healthiness, by the way. Martha is allowing Mary's life to dictate her life and her emotions and her behavior. She's comparing herself to Mary. Peter did the same thing at the end of John's gospel. Peter is in the process of being restored to relationship with Jesus after Peter's betrayal. Peter looks over at John uh, and says to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? What's going to happen to him? He didn't betray you. What's he going to get? Jesus just says to Peter, what is that to you? If I want him to remain, what is that to you? His story is his story. I think about when Aslan told Shasta on the way up to Archerland, Archerland, right? And the horse and his boy. He says, I tell no one any story but his own. Comparison robs us of, a, of the sense of joy in what you are doing. It distracts you from the path that you are to walk. It'll pull you away from what God has called you to do. Again, I'm a Martha. There's a reason why God had Chris ask me to do this particular <laughs> message, this little particular four verses here. And in our social media-driven world, it's so easy to see images from one second of one person's day or week and long for a life like theirs. 
In reality, their life has just as much drama and problems and issues and conflict as anyone else's. So, when you find yourself comparing or longing for a life that's not yours, let that be a, an indicator that you're being pulled away from what God has asked you to do. One more sign here, fourth sign, and it's this. Martha doubts Jesus' care for her. She comes to Jesus, don't you care that I'm doing all this work for you, by the way, and Mary's not helping at all? And then Mary presumes to tell her creator how it's going to go. She orders Jesus around. She commands him, tell her to help me. Don't you care? Now, I'm sure there's all been times where we've all had that question about Jesus. Don't you care? I'm, do, I'm going through all this stuff. I'm doing all this stuff. Don't you care? If, we have, if not for ourselves personally, then perhaps for those we love. We look at the way things are going and we wonder if Jesus cares about us. Or, or we, we're doing all this good stuff for Jesus, for other people. Nobody seems to care. Who are we really doing it for? Does Jesus really care? She doubts Jesus actually cares for her. The disciples did the same thing when they were in the boat. The storm came up and Jesus is sleeping through the storm. They ask him the same thing. Don't you care that we're about to drown? Martha wonders if Jesus really cares about all this effort she's putting in to serve him. And notice how Jesus responds to her doubting and to our doubt. He responds with tender love and affection. Martha, Martha. He says her name twice. You know, in that day and age, in that culture, that double use of a word, what that does, it, it, it magnifies it. It, it um, turns it up to 11. So when David, like for example, when David lose, has lost his son Absalom, he doesn't just say, oh, Absalom, I miss you. He cries out, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You know, it's a magnification of his grief, and it's an intensity of his grief. That's the way they uh, would communicate such a uh, deep feeling, by doubling that word. Well, here, Jesus doesn't reject her doubting, but he invites her closer in. Martha, Martha, you can feel the deep love that Jesus has for this amazing woman of faith. While she is pulling away with all of her service, Jesus is pulling her in with all of his love and affection. And he shows her the way forward. He tells her, shows her how to reorient her heart to what is really necessary. He doesn't dismiss her hard work and tell her all that stuff doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter as much as she thinks it matters. But Jesus empowers her to make a choice he says, Mary has chosen the best thing in life. And I love that about Jesus. You get to choose. You get to choose what's important to you. You get to choose what's going to buy for your heart's attention. You are given the dignity of facing the consequences of your choices. Yes, there are many things that need to be done for the Lord and for the kingdom of God, but first and foremost, we must choose to sit at Jesus' feet. A woman's place is at the feet of Jesus. 
a human's place is at the feet of Jesus, first and foremost. Jesus says, Mary has chosen the best part of life to sit at Jesus' feet. Now, in those days, some of you know, uh, when you sat at the feet of Jesus, you know, she's not just making googly eyes at Jesus and think he's all that, like a Justin Bieber kind of uh, awe and wonder at this person that is larger than life. No, she's submitting herself to Jesus' teaching as a master teacher. She's submitting to him to learn from him in order that she might one day communicate what she's learning and in order to teach others as well. In those days, it was just the men who apprenticed themselves to a rabbi or a master teacher. And so N.T. Wright says that the biggest problem Martha has with Mary is that Mary is acting like a man in that day, in that culture. Mary moves past all these invisible boundaries that society sets up and that are still set up even today. She places herself with the men around Jesus' feet to learn, to glean, to study, to understand more of the kingdom of God in order that she may communicate the kingdom of God to other people as well. And Jesus is inviting Martha to do the same thing. Jesus welcomes and receives Mary as a full and equal partner in learning the kingdom of God so that she can then share that understanding with others. It looked like she had been helping Martha. Martha complains that Mary had left her to go learn. It sounds like Mary was helping out, and then Jesus shows up, and Mary goes and sits at, the, at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, Mary chose the best thing, to sit at Jesus' feet first, and then, having heard, go and share that with the world. Now, this past week, uh, we heard a woman of faith do so in the face of horrific and tragic abuse in the U.S. gymnastics trial, uh, doctor. And for me, only a woman who has sat at the feet of Jesus could say such words as she said. She said this. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. This is Rachel Denhollander. She says, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting, as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. She's saying this in front of millions of people. She continues, If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, yet you have damaged hundreds of children. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found 
and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. This woman is sat at the feet of Jesus. Has learned to name evil for what it is, to speak the truth in love, what it means to forgive, to choose to forgive. She has sat at the feet of Jesus. She has sat at the feet of the master teacher. Lately, when I've been on Facebook or YouTube, maybe you've seen these uh, advertisements of, well, uh, these advertisements for these master classes with all these amazing teachers uh, from all these world-renowned artists and people. There's all these master classes you can take. Have you seen that? So you can take photography with any Leibowitz. Uh, you can take cooking lessons from Gordon Ramsay. You can learn to play basketball, I guess, from a computer through with Steph Curry. You can learn comedy from Steve Martin. That's one I would sign up for. He plays banjo as well. Uh, you can learn writing from Judy Bloom or James Patterson. It's amazing. You can, you can sign up for these master classes. That's what they call them, master classes. There's all this great content out there about getting good at a certain aspect of life. And it just makes me think about this story here. We see Jesus uh, inviting us to get good at life, to get good at uh, serving. He's inviting us into deeper relationship with him. As Dallas Willard has said, the really good news for humanity is that Jesus is now taking students in the master class of life. You want to get good at prayer? You can get good at prayer. You want to get good at understanding the Bible? You can get good at understanding the Bible. You want to get good at the spiritual gifts, moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, discerning the times, gaining wisdom for this crazy time of life we're in? You can do that. You get to choose. And what Jesus is inviting us into is the best of all. He's inviting us into his life, into his joy. He's inviting us to sit at his his feet. He's inviting us into his love. Do you hear his call to you this evening? What tends to pull your heart away? What makes you worried? What makes you upset? What makes you compare? What makes you doubt that Jesus actually cares for you? Jesus is inviting you. Sarah, Sarah. Emily, Emily, Sophia, Sophia. Let's pray. to invite you to maybe finish that sentence for yourself. Jeff, Jeff, you are worried and upset about blank. What is that for you? What is that for your heart that worries you, that upsets you, that you might compare yourself 
or makes you doubt Jesus' care for you. And even with that, I would invite you to bring whatever it is that makes you worried or upset or compare or doubt, uh, bring that to the feet of Jesus. Hear his tender love and affection for you. He knows, he knows, he knows, he knows the real reason why you do what you do. Would you hear his invitation to simply sit at his feet first and foremost? Understand his ways. Learn from him the unforced rhythms of grace. Take his yoke upon you. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He invites you to sit at his feet. Bring all of that that worries and distracts you. Whatever pulls you away from him, bring that to Jesus. Let him pull you in tonight. Jesus, we say yes to your invitation. We say yes to your call. Men, women, children, all of our, our place is at your feet. A human's place is at your feet. Help us hear your call tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.